0: Continue the thoughts that we began last Wednesday in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. That message, or part of that message that Jesus had for the seven churches that he revealed to John there on the island of Patmos. This segment was to the church at Sardis. And we covered the first piece of that, but let's read the entirety of verse 5 just to begin with before we cover the second. Uh, the second and third piece of that provision there. And there it says, he who overcomes shall be over, shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And we'll bow our heads together once again. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, for your provision. Lord, for goodness uh, that has measures and depth and abundance and eternal riches for us, Father, that we can lay hold of more and more day by day. Father, I thank you that you are an infinite God that provides infinitely. Help us to receive at every capacity that we might, Lord. Help us to desire everything that we can desire. Father, open up our hearts and our minds to know more of you, to recognize your goodness and your provision, and to hope and pursue that, Father day after day. Bless us in this word, in this time of fellowship today. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, just by way of just a brief review, last week we considered that him that overcomes, that one that we're considering being a quote-unquote full overcomer, laying hold of everything that the Lord has laid hold of his people for, that one shall be clothed in white garments. And we considered that Well, I kind of likened it to the issue, standard issue of a military or of a public service outfit, whatever the situation might be that you'd like to make that comparison to. That the robe of righteousness is standard issue for all children of God. White in its color, white to a hue and a tone that is well more than any launderer or fuller. Uh, how it, whatever term you'd like to use can reach, and we compared it to Jesus, his his likeness being presented at the Mount of Transfiguration, that we might look like him, physically, if you want to say it is that way. It's certainly physical slash spiritual in heaven, but he gave a physical representation of what his glorified body would look like, what ours will look like when we're in eternity with him. When we saw, when not we, when they saw him clothed in white and his countenance bright, uh, well, to a very real measure, we're going to look like him. And so we should also mirror him spiritually, his righteousness, his purity, his goodness, all of those things that white figures to us. And that image will be represented uh, in eternity. And we saw the examples in the innumerable multitude, but also those 24 elders that are robed and enthroned and with crowns upon their heads. Uh, Pictures of those full overcomers. Our new creation, we considered looks like Christ. And it should bear up and it should be our front and center presentation to the world. Every piece of our new creation as we put off the flesh. That's been our consideration uh, in the last week. If you turn to Daniel chapter 12, you see this represented there. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, prophetic piece of scripture... That can be difficult to understand and difficult to apply if you don't put timelines together and take the time to recognize it. But this speaks to a time, well, at the end of this age when the church is going to have been taken up, and it speaks about that time and, and the church being gone at that time. In Daniel chapter 12, points to that time leading up to what we oftentimes call the Great Tribulation. It says in Daniel 12 and verse 1, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, that first resurrection we consider, some to shame and everlasting contempt, those who take part in that second death that we've considered. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There is a white robe that will be borne out by all believers. But those ones who let that white show today, that allow that robe of righteousness, that new creation, that representation of Christ in you, the hope of glory, when that is our focus and what we allow to be represented and presented today today, Those ones will shine brightly. They'll be part of that moon glory that we consider oftentimes in that day to come. There is a brightness that all God's people will share with Christ in glory. And him that that overcomes will certainly shine beginning in this life. Now, while we're there in Daniel chapter 12, you can look there in verse 1 and you see there at the end, it says, At that time your people shall be delivered. And specifically it says, Everyone who is found written in the book. And that kind of... Sounds familiar when you flip back to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Sounds similar to that provision that we just read a moment ago. Uh, I will not blot out his name, him that overcomes. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. It says there in verse 5. Uh, it takes very little time when you're reading Scripture. Uh, very little time to recognize that the Lord keeps track of people. The Lord keeps track of not just, well, He keeps track of names. Let's say it that way first off. He keeps track of names. You can look in Genesis and you can read the genealogy of Adam and and those ones that branched off from him and his respective sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. You can look in the books of Chronicles and the books of the kings. You can look in, well, Ezra and Nehemiah give certain measures of genealogies of those ones who were there in Jerusalem. You can see genealogies recorded all over the place. I don't even have to point you to Matthew chapter 1 and, well, early in, uh, I think it's Luke chapter 1 as well, if not Luke chapter 2 or 3 perhaps. going off my memory and that doesn't work, but the genealogy of Jesus. The Lord keeps track of people. He keeps track of those ones and where they fit in the lineage. And those are just the ones that he gave to mankind to be recorded and to recognize. The book of life is a record of sorts if you want to just get down to what it is just that it's brass tacks it's the record of those ones who are believers who have believed in the lord jesus and have eternal life have accepted him the book of life it's it is what it is what it says that it is uh, it's where the lord records as it were the names of those ones who have accepted and had faith that was accounted to them for righteousness. Now. Is it an actual book? You know, John saw a lot of things in his revelation and and a lot of things are presented in Scripture that, well, had an actual literal presentation, but oftentimes they were correlated to things that we would understand even if that wasn't necessarily what they were. It could be that the book of life is an actual large book with a whole number of names in it. Or maybe it isn't because the Lord doesn't need a book. It's all right here, right? All right, therefore, for for the Lord God. He can speak figuratively. But the bottom line is, is that whether it's actually penned and written out, or if it's just merely a metaphor, God knows who his people are. He knows who his own are. He knows who has those ones who have eternal life. I'm grateful for that. Uh, Let's turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16 points to this book of remembrance there at the end of <clears throat> the end of the Old Testament record. It speaks of a book of remembrance akin to this book of life that we're looking at here. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16 it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. If you turn to Philippians chapter 4 in the New Testament, Paul speaks similarly, except he uses the term that we're very familiar with. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Who are those fellow workers? They're believers who have committed themselves to the Lord and are walking by faith. Luke chapter 10, Jesus himself, as we considered this here on Sunday evening. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus told those 70 that he sent out, when they returned and told him of the success that they had had in their spiritual work and the endeavors that they'd experienced. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Again, there's an indelible record. We speak of indelible grace. Uh, We sing that song number 27 in the Brown Book. It's something that can't be changed, something that can't be moved, something that can't be erased, something that can't be blotted out. Those who are written in the book of life will not be Removed. They will not be blotted out. Now, specifically, as we saw in Revelation 3, 5, him that overcomes can take that to the bank, certainly. But this is promised to all. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, as I've studied this out, and perhaps in your mind, when you think about blotting out I will not blot out a believer's name from the book of life. Maybe you thought as I did back in Exodus 32. Wasn't there something in there about him blotting out people's names? Let's look back to the Old Testament and look at this for a minute. Just uh, for the sake of not argument. And I sure don't like the term devil's advocate because I won't ever advocate for for that one. But we can look back and we can just check off a box in case anyone might be wondering about Exodus chapter 32. And verses 31 through 33, this being after Israel had failed and called for Aaron to build them a golden calf while Moses was up securing the law from the Lord. They had stepped out uh, outside of faith. They'd stepped out in sin and they had defiled themselves. Um, Exodus chapter 32 and verse 31, it says, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, yet yet now, if you will forgive their sin, he's interceding on their part. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Now, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say this, child of God, you might have some time where you might come before the Lord, and for the sake of someone else. Offer yourself, as it were. Something along the lines of what Moses is doing here. Paul says, I could understand offering myself on behalf of my brethren, Israel, he spoke. There's a measure of, well, if you love somebody, and if you have a burden for somebody, we are willing. You know, It says, a greater love hath no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. And there might come a time where we might even consider for our children or something like that, It might cross our minds to give up something of the eternal things. Let me encourage you. Moses was a good and a godly man. He wasn't a flawless man. And sometimes we can say some things uh, quickly and rashly. Blot me out of your book, which you have written. Don't ever ask the Lord to blot you out of something that he has given you eternally. Uh, Ask him to lift somebody else up. It will never be at your spiritual sacrifice that someone else's spiritual good will come. Understand that. It's always for your, their spiritual best that you lay hold of everything that God has for you. And don't offer to sacrifice something. That being said, you can appreciate what Moses was saying here. And the Lord told him very simply. The Lord said to Moses, it goes on in verse 33. Whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. And so, uh, that leaves it quite, uh, quite well, it was quite settled there with Moses. But then, in well, in light of what we're considering here, does that mean salvation wasn't eternal in that day? If they were written in the book of life? Now, I want to tell you... I don't view this as being the book of life, as it were, as we look where it's only presented in Revelation, that mention there in Philippians and Jesus referring to it by something other than its name there in the New Testament. This is a different measure of blotting. Now, I don't want to just hymn and haw on things, but I want us to understand this was a different dispensation in this time. This was a different dealing that the Lord had with these people. And he was getting ready to present to them the law of Moses. And what was the law of Moses' purpose? was to tell this flawed humanity, this flawed people, you need a savior, you are a sinner, a company of sinners, a whole race of sinners, and you can't do it on your own. You need redemption, you need salvation, you need sanctification, you need all of those shuns that we talk about so often. And the law was intended to present to them their continual need for that and their continual failure on their own. So I think that the Lord is bringing out here terminology that they would understand. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. He will be removed from that list, if you want to call it that. He'll be blotted out from that list. And then we understand as the law comes in, there were ways by which righteousness was given, right? Faith faith was certainly the way of righteousness, but we'll talk about that here in just a moment. The understanding that was given for that time and that dispensation was different than the terminology and the understanding that we have today in knowing Jesus. He was setting them up for this law to come in. Setting them up and laying this foundation for them to understand their need for salvation, their need for atonement, and their inability to attain it for themselves. And he was enunciating that, well, for them to understand. I'll blot this one out. This, you aren't capable on your own to atone for yourselves. But we can see a shift of that concept for those ones who are willing to see it. In Psalm chapter fifty-one, let's let's go over there. Psalm chapter fifty-one is written by David, and he wrote it after his well, his great sin that he uh, well that he invited upon himself with that woman Bathsheba. He knew that he had sinned. He knew that he was worthy of death under the law that by that time was had been installed for generations. He knew that he had sinned against God. Whoever has sinned against me, God had just said, right, to Moses, I will blot him out of my book. So David didn't have any kind of leg to stand on, did he? Well, we understand that the Lord, the Lord was teaching some things. And David was getting it, even in the midst and after his sin. Psalm 51, verse 1, let's see what I'm talking about here. He speaks to the Lord and he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness." You know, Jonah, uh, Scott's been preaching, speaking on Jonah and teaching about that man Jonah. Jonah, even in his fallacy, even in his error and his misguided anger and all of those things, he recognized who God was. Even in the midst of his, well, let's call it what it is, his sinful attitude that he had. He didn't want redemption for those ones. He didn't want mercy for Nineveh. He couldn't change who God was. D- despite his every effort at... Mm, he says, you, you know, I've told you, you are who you are. You are merciful and you're loving. Well, David wasn't sitting and giving it to God. wasn't angry at God. He was angry at himself. And he recognized the same as Jonah did. He said, have mercy upon me, O God. I know what you've said. I know what... Your judgment is, I know all of these things that are established in every single piece of this law. And I know that I am the failure that this defines and this is set up to prove to me and every other one. I am a failure and I have failed immensely. I don't deserve anything. But according to who you are, according to your actuality, according to your purity and your righteousness and your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, he said... he asked him not to blot his name out. He said, blot out my transgressions. That's a big ask in that day when Jesus' blood hadn't been shed. That's a big ask uh, in that day when the law presented what, well, what such sins were, were supposed to bring about. It was a death penalty. But David was making this big ask because he understood who the Lord was understood that concept of grace. He goes on in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know what? I don't know everyone's failures here. And you don't know all of mine, but I know that we have them. And there are times when we have failed and we have fallen into the muck, so to speak. Fallen into the, just the gacky garbage of, of sin sometimes, Right? And you can come out of that, and there are repercussions to come from it. And David had repercussions, and he was going to have repercussions, and they're well recorded in the history and presented in Scripture. But there are times when the repercussions are the least of your worries, I think. And I think that when he's sitting here and he says, cleanse me from my sin, cleanse me from my iniquity, I don't even think that he was even considering the death penalty in that moment. I think that he wanted to be right with his father, don't you? Don't you think he wanted to be rid of the burden that sin brings on? Because it brings on a burden. If you're at all cognizant, if you're at all sensitive to the things of God, and if you have a new creation in you, you do have a sensitivity. We can callous those things if we want to. But David wanted to be cleansed from his sin. He wanted that foulness to be gone. And he says, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and he says, and my sin, and I think you probably put in, yet my sin is still always before me. It's presented to him. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So according to what The Lord said here to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. David said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So did he blot his name from his book? Did he blot him from his spiritual family? Did God then indeed go in and remove David from that? I think you know the answer to that. David was a man after God's own heart. Did not depart from anything that God commanded him except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And this is what he's approaching him about. Blot out my transgressions. Don't blot me out. Blot out my transgressions. Blot the sin so that we can have fellowship again. Not so that I can have this behind me and have this forgotten and all those things. He wanted reconciliation and, and fellowship with the God that I know in my heart, that in his heart he indeed loved, the Lord says so. And his faith was accounted to him for righteousness. We understand that. It was the sin that the Lord wanted to blot out. It wasn't the name. It wasn't the person. He never wanted to blot. That. He, he desires that all should come. All should come to a saving knowledge, an understanding, a salvation. He, he wants that for everybody. Not willing that any should perish. And David got it. David got that. He asked for it, and the Lord granted that to him because of his faith. He goes on. Look 10 verses down there in 51.14. He's continuing to ask. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice. That's the law that, that Moses was getting ready to receive, that God was getting ready to present to him when he said, I'll blot out the names of those ones who sin against me. David's saying, I know, I know what this is all about, and he's not being haughty about it. David says, I know what this is representing. I know what this is meaning. I know what this showbread is. I know what this ephod is that I'm putting on. I'm not authorized to do so. All of these things, David had an understanding and he had a measure. And he expressed that understanding to the Lord. He said, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. He had the means to present whatever calf, bull, goat, sheep, pigeons, (laughs) whatever the case might be. All of those things, he says, I would give these things. You do not delight in burnt offering. Your word says so. The law said so. No, he does not delight in those things. He goes on to say what he knew to be so. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, God, O God, you will not despise. He doesn't want to blot out the names of people. He wanted to blot out their sins as they came to him in faith. That's how it progressed there. So, David understood grace, even though the name of that grace, Jesus Christ himself, had not arrived on the scene yet. David understood that a full atonement needed to be made, not just the blood of bulls and goats. He understood that a full atonement was necessary and could only come. Whatever his name would be, would have to be provided by the mercy and the grace of God. And that's what he besought the Lord upon. That's what he stood his Request of the Lord on was his understanding that a full atonement needed to be made. And Jesus was indeed the full attainment, atonement for King David, just as he is for you and me. He was the atonement that had to be made for him. His blood was still required for Je- uh, for David rather, to be cleansed. Jesus' blood still needed to be shed. And when Jesus came and when he died and he, when he went to Calvary and when he went into the grave... Went down, led captivity captive, all of those things, and David's sin was indeed fully atoned for, as was everyone else's. Well, everyone else's sin was atoned for. Who would simply receive that? And if you want to take the metaphor that way, the book of life became the book of life. It was washed in the blood of Jesus. And those names were written indelibly at that moment in the blood of Jesus, every name of faith, written in his blood, you could say. Hebrews chapter ten kind of gives a representation of that. It speaks of our high priest and the work that he did. And it puts it into kind of these terms that we're considering and this context that we're looking at in Hebrews ten verse eleven. The writer of Hebrews talks about every priest standing, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices year after year and day after day and generation after generation and none of those things, he says, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and that's Jesus offering the sacrifices for sins from the moment of Calvary on, from the moment of Calvary all the way back, this one after he had offered one sacrifice sacrifice for all sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, it goes on, for after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, And in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. It will be done. It's past. Those ones who will receive that blood for themselves. He'll remember them no more. Now where there is remission of these. There is no longer an offering. Or a need for that offering for sin. Because Jesus' offering was that. It was provided. Paid for that remission of sin. For David. For you. For me. For all Well, all who will accept that. And we see that. And with that sacrifice, that blotting changed, as it were. Not just looking to blot out the names of those ones who would not take on faith. But it was a blotting of the sin of those ones. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20, we see that. Where Peter told those ones, after he had healed that lame man that we considered a couple of days ago, he said, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before. The blotting to be done now is just the blotting out of sin for the child of God. Name is written indelibly. Him that overcomes and those ones who won't lay hold of everything, all of them are written in the palm of the Lord's hands, you might say. Written completely and entirely eternally. And the book of life is his. He's laid claim to it. He paid for it. And he, well, he inscripted each one of those things eternally. Without any chance of it being blotted out anymore. The sin is what is blotted out. Child of God. And I'm grateful for that. For time's sake, I'm not going to take you to Revelation chapter 20. But I will just tell you, as you read Revelation chapter 20, one of the Well, less pleasant things to read about that great white throne judgment. And John saw that great white throne and those ones who stood before it were the ones who were, well, who had chosen not to be in the Lamb's book of life. Those ones who chose not to be remembered. Who chose not to be indelibly, well, assigned and appointed to the family of God. And they open up the book of life and their names aren't there. And so they open up the other books, the books of their acts, their works. And no one's acts, no one's works are sufficient enough to buy their way into heaven, you might say. And so, those ones who weren't found in the Lamb's book of life, those ones who didn't take the Lord's act as their salvation, well, it says in verse 15 of Revelation 20, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we know strictly from that verse alone that those who were then in the book of life the only way you're going to be in heaven will be those ones who are written in the book of life, the children of God, without question. No, 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 even real argument, you might say. Those ones who allow themselves to be judged by the work of Jesus for salvation, they will be there. And so, now that the Lord Jesus has. Uh, well, take an ownership of the book of life for, and all of those ones who are in it. We return back to our opening passage where it says, He that overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I suppose you could say it this way, and this is how I've looked at it. Now that he owns the book of life and he's bought the book of life and everyone inside of it, he has the prerogative to read the book of life if he so chooses. And he's going to. He's going to read the names of those. One's it says to confess. He's going to confess that one's name before my father and before his angels. To confess means to acknowledge or to pronounce. I didn't do a lot of confessing when I was a kid. I would lie through my teeth. <laughs> if I'd done something wrong, I would lie and then lie about the lies and then lie until my parents were just tired of dealing with it. You know, I, I was, man, I was committed to it, you know, and I didn't confess oftentimes. But there were times when... You know, I played in the garage one time, and I I wanted to see an arc. So I took this cord that was stripped open that Dad had. It was just a jumper cord. There was just an open end, a cord to nothing, and two prongs on the other end. I plugged it in, and I went and put them together. I wanted to see it glow, I said. That's what I told Dad. I was hoping for the whole Frankenstein thing, you know, going... It doesn't work that way, man. TV misleads all kinds of eight-year-old boys. And so, anyway, I popped the breaker. Long story short, Dad came out. His eyes were this big because the power went out inside or whatever. The breaker went out, and, man, I carried a lie for as long as I could. And, and Dad just, I don't know if he, he was really on the verge of tears, or I just believed he was going to be. He's like, Greg, I don't know what to do because there could be a fire in the house. Something popped, you know, something made this. And I finally confessed. All that stupid story, just to tell you. One time I remember confessing and acknowledging and taking ownership This was my mistake. This is what I did that was wrong. Dad didn't, I didn't get in trouble for it. He might have yelled at me a little bit, but he was just relieved that I'd done something stupid and the house wasn't going to burn down. I confessed and I owned that stupidity. I'm grateful for this that the Lord doesn't, well, when he confesses the name of him that overcomes, I believe that he views it as confessing and taking ownership of a victory, a victory that he sees. His child, his dear one, having all of those sins having been blotted out, all of their stupidities of touching things together spiritually, just to see things glow and then lying about it and all of that, having allowed themselves to progress, having allowed themselves to mature in faith, having allowed themselves to lay hold of him. And when he confesses that when he confesses the name the name of those ones who love him and return that love to him, there's a victory that's there. And there's a joy to taking ownership, acknowledging and pronouncing this one is mine. This one is a victory. This is one who did overcome and laid hold. Man, I want that for myself. I want that for you. Because he acknowledges it before those ones who matter. I mean, there's not a much better... You know, when someone vouches for you, it's really nice when it's someone who matters, right? You know, silly middle school things. You know, if you, if you like a girl or you like a guy or something, you, you might have your friend go tell them what a great person you are because that person matters to a, certain, to a certain extent to you. You know, if you don't like somebody, it doesn't matter how good they think you are, right? This is the Father. This is the Father. The angels certainly, man, they're in there and they're, they're, it's a large mass of awfully powerful beings but the most important one that we look to impress, you might say, to say, you know, like the kids do, look at me, Dad, watch me, Dad. You know, we don't brag in front of the Lord, but when Jesus says, man, I acknowledge this one, I confess and I pronounce this one as being one that overcomes, that's, that, again, that's what I want to hear. Also, I say to you, he says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 8, Jesus says, Jesus says there also I say to you whoever confesses me before men him the son of man also will confess before the angels of god he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of god there's you reject the lord jesus and the offer that he has for you then well, then you're rejecting something rather remarkable. It has all kinds of facets of sadness to it when you consider that. Uh, when we affix ourselves to that relationship, when we acknowledge the desire to be with him, he will acknowledge that. He'll return that acknowledgement. He wants to sit and, well, enjoy that fellowship with us. For both he who sanctifies, we read in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, he who sanctifies, and that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all of one, and that's God the Father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You know, there are a number of other places in Scripture where it says do not be ashamed, either in those words or other things, and he has to say that because he has to say that. It's our tendency oftentimes to hide... Well, to hide who we are, to hide that new man, to hide our robe of righteousness. And those ones, man, those ones who don't do so, who don't take shame in their faith, who don't take shame in their place in their desire to have that place with the Lord. Well, when it comes time that it really matters, he won't be ashamed of us either. He's not ashamed to call them Brethren. You know, again, back in those middle school days, a number of different ones. It's kind of the cliche, right? Oh, Mom, don't drop me off up at the uh, up at the front of the school here. Let me out here. A couple of blocks back here. <laughs> man, that's a heartbreaking thing to me, man. I don't think I ever did that to my mom. It's not to say I'm just some kind of noble guy, but... It, it would hit me in the feels too hard to have told my mom or dad to suggest to them that I was too ashamed for them to drop me off at school or, or whatever the case might be. And I never felt that. Uh, that's saying something about them more than it says about me. Shouldn't that be how it is with God? I mean, obviously. Should we have any shame of the Almighty who just so happened to die for it? You know, I could go at length at everything that He's done for us. Of course not. Should He be ashamed of us? We who grieve Him, we who, again, are ashamed of Him at times, we who can hide and, and, well, not quite live up to the, well, to that calling, not quite live worthy of the calling from time to time. Yeah, there will certainly be justification for that. He doesn't owe us any loyalty, and yet still, man, He owns that relationship, acknowledges that relationship And professes that relationship and wants to profess every part of that relationship to the ultimate and highest place for him that overcomes to his Father. The one who rejoices over, one who repents. Just one. The Lord rejoices. We read that in Scripture. He wants to cry that out in front of the angels who desire to look into such things and might say, Why? (laughs) It's a head scratcher to them, perhaps, but Jesus does it nonetheless. We're going to read here before too long about those ones when he says, I'll make them know that I have loved you. We'll bring those ones who will end up worshiping before your feet as you are close to me. The Lord wants to cry out and he wants to name you as being not just his. He's grateful for that, not just to be brethren, but to be something even more. As we'll consider next week as we look into... Philadelphia, and that church that is a representation of those things. Saints, it's a blessing that all God's children will enjoy, certainly, to wear garments of white. Um, Well, to be written in the book of life, certainly we are there. And even to be claimed as his brethren, but there's a certain extra level that we're searching for, and him that overcomes will lay hold of all of those things to the utmost degree. They will be clothed in white, and they will be In the Lamb's book of life, certainly. And will be confessed as His, but they will shine the brightest of white. And the Lord will exalt them to the highest place. And they'll share His name, you might even say. As His name is, well, that one's name is proclaimed to the Father. There's going to be something extra there, I believe. And that's what we're going to pick up in next week as we consider Philadelphia a church that's characterized by him that overcomes. Characterized as an assembly uh, that carries those traits. And we can put all these things we've considered and kind of squish them into one example. And that's what we will do. So look ahead to Philadelphia next week. But in the meantime, let your garment show, child of God, and celebrate that you're in the Lamb's book of life and seek to be called closest to him as he proclaims your name to his father and the angels."